Please open your Bibles and read along as I go through Proverbs 15, verses 1 through 8. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise dispenses knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who heeds admonition is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the minds of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Last week we turned a corner in this series on the, pre- on the pleasures of God. You remember that up until last week we had been focusing almost all of our attention on the pleasures that God has in himself and in his works of creation and and providence. We had been stressing very heavily that God is self-sufficient, that he is overflowing and full of joy, that he is sovereign in his freedom from coercion and, and constraint and bribery and blackmail. And then last week we turned a corner and began to ask what kinds of responses from the human heart might God delight in? What might we do or what might we be that would cause pleasure to well up in the heart of God? And I think that's a tremendously important question. How do we know what to do or is there anything I might say or feel or think that would bring delight to the heart of God. Because I'm a sinner and I don't feel hopeful that there is. You know, even if God were to admit me into heaven as a person who is totally displeasing to him, it would be hell. I mean, can you imagine an eternity in the presence of God such that whenever he looked upon you, he turned away with disgust. Whenever he happened to cast a glance upon you, he was revolted by what he saw. And he was never delighted, never pleased with you. I think that would not be heaven. That would be an eternity of misery if God could not be pleased with me in anything that I said or did or felt Or was. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 9 that he made it his aim, whether here or in heaven, to please God. Please Him. He longed to bring delight to the heart of God, to bring pleasure to the heart of the Almighty. And I think Paul would agree that it would be an eternity of misery if there were nothing that I could do or say or be 
that would please God, that would bring delight to God. And he was always revolted with me, angry at me, displeased with me, disgusted at my behavior and at my attitudes and at my feelings and my words and at who I was. Someone might say, look, that indeed is an important question, how I might find a way to please God. And it's so central, it's so important. Why have you spent seven weeks talking just about God's pleasure in Himself when in fact the central practical matter is how I can come to please God. How I could come to do something so that God would be delighted with me. Why didn't you get to this sooner? What's the point of all of those seven weeks of just talking about God's relationship to Himself and and His work? Now I hope that you could answer that question. My answer would go like this. The vision of God that was developed in those first seven messages is the foundation, the indispensable foundation that I, for my hope that I, sinner though I be, might be able to please God. That's not an obvious thing to me. That I could be able to please God is not obvious at all to me. I need some very deep, some very broad foundation. If that confidence is going to stand, what what would you do if you discovered that you had lived your whole life trying your best to please God and came to the end of your life and discovered what the Pharisees discovered, that it was all an abomination in God's sight. All your efforts to please Him were an abomination to Him. That thought proves that this question is of immense importance. And it also proves that a foundation is needed. You see, somebody might say, oh, God would never do that. God would never reject somebody who had tried his whole life long to please him as best they could. But now you see the way that person is arguing? That person is saying, God would not insist on being pleased in a certain way because this is the way he is. That's exactly right. That's the way to argue. That's the way I'm arguing. Seven messages to try to find out who is this God. Lest we try a wrong way to please Him and be found that all of our efforts are simply an abomination in His sight. It is true you must know what kind of God there is before you can even begin to think right thoughts about how you might go about pleasing such a God. And what did we find? We found... That this God who is has no needs that I might be required to fill. He has no deficiencies that I might be required to supply. He is complete and full and overflowingly happy in the fellowship of the Trinity. And what's the upshot of that? One of the routines at our house on Sunday morning, I've told you before, is that while I'm taking my shower at about 
when do I take my shower? Six or so. Uh, uh, what are my son's names? <laughs> Barnabas and uh, Abraham come into the, the bathroom while I'm showering and say, Tell us a story, Daddy. Well, I don't tell Quintal and Quabe stories on Sunday morning. I just tell them sermon stories. And this morning it was a story about um, a mountain spring and a watering trough that got into a conversation with each other. And the watering trough was boasting that he was better than the mountain spring because people served him. There were bucket brigades that brought water and filled him up. And there were people that worked up a good sweat to fill him up. And I ask him, you agree with that watering trough? That the watering trough is greater than the mountain spring because people work so hard for him? And my, my punchline was where this bucket brigades get their water? They get it from the creek. Where's that creek come from? I'm from up in the mountain. Where up in the mountain? From that spring, it doesn't need anybody to carry buckets up that mountain. Which is the greater? A God who is full, who is self-replenishing, who is overflowing, who stands in no need of any bucket brigade or any sweaty saints? My hope as a desperate sinner who lives in the desert of an unrighteous world, hangs on this biblical truth. God is the kind of God who is pleased and delighted with the one thing I as a sinner have to offer. Thirst. That's why the sovereignty of God is so precious to me. That's why the freedom of God is right at the essence. I filled out a little form one time for the Mosaic class when they were doing some little surveys. Uh, Noel and I got a form, and one of the questions was, what's one word that comes to your mind when you think of God? And which word do you think I wrote? I wrote, free. And the reason that's important to me is because if God were dependent upon me, I would have to work for him, and there'd be no hope for me as a sinner. Not being dependent upon me, not needing me at all, being overflowing and abundant and not requiring bucket brigades or sweaty pumpers, there is a stream that flows out from this God, and the one thing that will glorify him is people who buckle down and drink. Last week, we said, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor His pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. This is unspeakably good news, brothers and sisters, that we have a God 
who is the kind of God who is delighted not when we offer him our strength, but when we depend upon his strength. That's good news. That's the essence of the gospel. And it's dependent upon a view of God. Hence the seven weeks on God and his self-sufficiency and his sovereign freedom from me. There are two reasons, therefore, why I spent time developing that vision of God. One, without it, you know what will happen when you try to think through how to please God? Without this view of God, you inevitably shape a way of pleasing God which is self-exalting and legalistic. Work for God. Pump, pump, pump. Carry those heavy buckets for God. But if you've got a God who doesn't need you, but who is magnified and glorified by your need of Him, then you can be the happiest of all sinners in the world. Today's message is just a little teeny expansion on last Sunday. If you understood last Sunday, you already understand today. The text is Proverbs 15:8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. And I just realized as I glanced down at my notes that I didn't give you the second reason why I, why I spent seven weeks on those messages. And it's simply this, that my hope is so fragile that I can please God. It is so uh, susceptible to being knocked down by discouragement and by tragedies and by pleasures and pride that I have to have a very broad, deep, heavy foundation for this to be rooted in. And that's a view of God that I tried to develop there. Now, today's text is simply an expansion, an outworking of last week's text, which said God has pleasure in those who hope in Him. Today it says God delights in those who pray to Him from an upright heart. My prayer is that the effect of this message will be yes to encourage you to pray. I think people will pray more if they think God smiles when they pray. If they think God is delighted with their prayers instead of being up there kind of, you know, oh, this is a bad prayer or this is a sinner, a sinner that's praying here. If you, if you could be convinced this morning, as I'm going to try to convince you, that God is filled with pleasure when sinners pray then I think you'd pray more. And the other reason or the other thing I hope that you will get from this message is simply a reaffirmation that we have a kind of God who is glorified by and delights in meeting needs more than making demands. Now, we're going to talk about obedience in two weeks, I think. But I want you to see first and foremost that God delights more in meeting needs than he does in making demands. That's the point of the second half of this verse, isn't it? What is prayer? It's, it's drinking, it's asking, it's needing, it's depending, it's hoping. And God is rejoicing when we're like that. Prayer is a delight to God because it displays the reaches of our Poverty and the riches of His grace. Prayer is a delight to God because it is that, 
indescribably great transaction where the wealth of God's glory is magnified and the wants of my soul are satisfied. You know, if you were to just try to dream up such a thing, dream up such a gospel, that there might be a place in the world where a sinner could go and in one act find God's sufficiency magnified and his wants satisfied, you could hardly dream of a better thing than to say, it's just prayer. It's, it's the place of prayer where that happens. Well, let's ask some questions about this text. A couple of questions we have time for. One, taking the first half of the verse, my question would be this. How in the world does a good thing become an abominable thing? I mean, God commanded sacrifices. Leviticus commends just and holy and good sacrifices. And God says these sacrifices are an abomination to him. How does such a thing happen? How can a good thing be an abomination to God? The text says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Well, the answer would go something like this, I think. A good thing becomes an ugly thing when it comes from an ugly heart. The principle behind this answer goes like this. And this is a radical biblical principle. God sees all of our outward acts as extensions of and outworkings of inward conditions of the heart. And he judges our outward acts only as extensions of our heart. That is devastating to people like Pharisees who wash the outside of the cup but inside are full of dead men's bones. Because God looks upon their sacrifices and holds his nose, it says in Amos. God always looks on the heart. And therefore, he always judges external acts as simply echoes of the heart. Extensions, outworkings. Of the heart, whether your acts are moral or immoral, they are an abomination if they come from hearts of unbelief. This is taught so clearly in the New Testament. Romans 14:23. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Can you imagine a more devastating thing to say to the world? It doesn't matter whether you're suckling a baby, whether you're rescuing a soldier, whether you're uh, shaping a welfare system, building a hospital. It is an abomination in the eyes of God if it doesn't come from faith. In other words, God is radically faith-centered, God-centered. We are very naive, and we've learned some of that this week, 
haven't we, in the news about certain TV programs, religious leaders? We are very naive if we just look at good deeds and say, God must like that. He must approve of such a thing. When, in fact, it might be an abomination because it comes from a heart that is corrupt. Hebrews says the same thing, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, unbelievers only displease God. You believe that? Without faith, all you do is commit abominations. I mean, if a sacrifice in the temple can be an abomination because it comes from the wrong kind of heart, anything can be an abomination and is an abomination when it comes from a heart of unbelief. In fact, right here in Hebrews 11, you have the illustration of sacrifices. Do you remember the context? Cain and Abel. Why was Cain's sacrifice an abomination to God and Abel's acceptable to God and delightful to God? I reject totally the interpretation that says it was because Abel's was a blood sacrifice and Cain's wasn't. I don't think that had one thing to do with it. I think God would have been perfectly happy to receive a pumpkin from this farmer, Cain. There's not one word of requirement for a blood sacrifice in this text. And not one word of indictment because it wasn't a blood sacrifice. Hebrews gives the answer. By faith, Abel offered his sacrifice. Cain didn't. And therefore, Cain's was rejected and Abel's was accepted. The principle behind the first half of Proverbs 15:8 is that all outward acts are extensions of and have the character about them in God's eyes of what is inside. Doesn't matter whether they are moral or immoral. Let us be careful in the way we judge morality. Now, someone might object and say, yeah, but doesn't it say something different in, in, the, in the prophets? When you read Isaiah and Amos and you see this same attitude of God towards um, sacrifices, doesn't it say that the problem is not so much with the condition of the heart, but with the inconsistency between being corrupt and unjust during the week and coming with your pious acts on Sunday, Sabbath? Yes, that's right. Let me show you. For example, in Isaiah 1.13, the prophet brings the most devastating uh, indictment against the, the uh, worshipers. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. I can't endure the iniquity and solemn assembly. Why? Why was he so angry? Verse 15 and 16. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Defend the fatherless. Plead for widows. So the argument would go, look, 
The reason God is so angry is because the, the man is a shyster during the week and he's trying to look pious on Sunday. And God hates that inconsistency. And that's right. But now that's not an objection to what I said. It's true, it just doesn't go to the root of the matter. And I can show you that by just asking this question. Suppose this week you were a shyster. That you cheated somewhere. And I'll bet that's true of somebody in here. You cheated somebody. You lied. Or you were mean at home. And disrespectful. Maybe even abusive. Can you please God this morning in worship? Yes. How's that? Because repentance is possible. Forgiveness is possible. I mean, if if there were no hope for people who were sinners during the week to be cleansed and accepted on Sunday morning, I'd, I'd just close up shop. So you see, the objection is real. In that, yes, God hates the inconsistency of being a shyster during the week and trying to look pious on Sunday morning. But what's the problem? What's the problem with that person on Sunday morning? The problem is that that heart's not broken by that that behavior. That heart is intending to do the same thing next week and make no moral resolves to change his business practices at all or to work things out at home so they get better. That's what God hates in that moment. That's why he can't be accepted. That's why his prayer is an abomination to God. It's not because he was bad before. It's because he's bad now. That heart that produced all that badness is the same heart in this moment. He's putting a cloak of righteousness around him. God sees straight through it and he stinks in the nostrils of the Almighty. It is the heart. That's the root of the matter. And so anybody can be accepted by God this morning. Anybody who will hate, hate the sin that they committed, be broken by it, cry out for mercy and receive forgiveness. You can delight the heart of God praying in your soul right now as I preach. So the root of the matter is still the same. God abominates the sacrifices of the wicked Precisely because they are coming from a heart that is wrong. Second question. And the last one. What what kind of heart do we need so that our sacrifices and our prayers delight the heart of God and, and are not abominations? What's the characteristic of this upright heart in the second half of the verse? It's called upright. It's the opposite of wicked. And I need more than anything else to know what that is. And we just have time for a couple quick characteristics of the upright heart. And to find these characteristics, I'm going to go to a couple of different places. The first place I'm going to go is Isaiah chapter 66, if you want to look there. And the reason I go to Isaiah 66, even though it seems far away as a context, is because the issue is the same. The structure of thought is the same. 
The issue is two kinds of worship. One is an abomination and one is acceptable. And here we're told something about the upright heart that is acceptable and pleasing to God. So let's look, first of all, at the wicked who try to worship and whom God uses words to describe that are almost unthinkable. Hard to overestimate the anger of the Almighty in these words in verse 3 of Isaiah 66. He who slaughters an ox is like him who kills a man. And he who sacrifices a lamb may as well break a dog's neck on my altar. God is very angry. He is very angry. Good night. If he says to you on a Sunday morning when you come in here and bow down, you may as well kill a man as be here. Good night. Can you, can, can you believe such a word when people are walking into the temple with their ox? Doing what the law said. Cutting his neck, pouring the blood over the altar. You might as well kill a man, God says. Why is he so angry? Verse 4. When I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. The reason God is so angry is because these pious sacrifice offerers have stopped their ears. They have their agenda. They know the way they're going to live their life. Thank you. Don't tell me how to run my family. Don't tell me how to run my business. Don't tell me anything. I have my ways. Stop. Hard. Callous. Stubborn. And God abominates their religion. Now, what's the opposite? What kind of people in this text does God hear, turn to, listen, and delight in? Verse 2. This is the man to whom I will look. He that is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. His ears aren't closed. He's trembling at the word of God. So what's the first mark of the upright heart? whose prayers are a delight to God, trembling at the word of God. Trembling? Yes. The upright in heart feel precarious in the presence of God. Remember last week in the ice face, you clinging there? The upright in heart feel precarious in the presence of God. They know the sin of their lives. They know they have nothing in themselves to commend themselves to God as though they could earn anything from Him. They are in a precarious condition and you tremble when you're in a precarious situation. It's the same thing all through the Old Testament, isn't it? Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. The Pharisee and the publican, they go up to the temple and the Pharisee with not the slightest trembling in his hands says, I thank to God that I am not like this man. I fast and I pray and I keep my uh, vows and I tithe. And the other one with trembling Beating his breast in utter desperation. God be merciful. I have nothing. I have nothing. And God's face lights up like a sun. And this man went down to his house justified. 
It's glorious. Or consider Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will, number one, humble themselves and then pray, he'll hear. So the first mark of the upright heart, the upright sinner, mark it, the upright sinner, is they tremble at his word and are broken for sin. Here's the last characteristic of the upright heart. The upright heart trusts in the willingness and the power of God to show the mercy that they need so desperately. Now, I get this from Psalm 4, verse 5, where it says, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. I, I just conclude from that simple parallel. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. That the essence of a right sacrifice. Or the essence of a right heart. In sacrifice. Is trust in mercy. Now. Let me close by trying to clarify something here. We could make a terrible mistake. In reading the Old Testament. If. When we come to these words, upright, righteous, we didn't see ourselves there. We've been taught so well that we're sinners and that our righteousness is as filthy rags that when you read the Psalms and the Proverbs and you see a verse like Proverbs 15, 8, where it says, the wicked this and the righteous that, you recoil and say, well, I, I, I'm wicked and... And you, you don't put yourself in that righteous category. And that's wrong. That's wrong. I've got to somehow help you see this morning that when you read the Old Testament, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you better put yourself in the category of the righteous. And every time you see a contrast between the wicked and the righteous, you say, that's me in the righteous there without any thought of pride or self-exaltation. Because if you don't, you're done for. There's no hope. Because the wicked are doomed and only the righteous are saved. All through the Old Testament. So what does it mean? Right here in our text, the upright in heart. Let's go to Psalm verse uh, Psalm 32. This is one of my favorite psalms because it starts with the doctrine of justification. And it comes to a conclusion with a clarification about what the Old Testament means by righteous people. So that you don't have to feel self-exalting or proud when you read the prayers of the upright or the prayers of the righteous please God and say, yes, my prayers do. I am that. Look, Psalm 32 begins, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, what do we have here? We have a blessed sinner, a blessed sinner, a blessed sinner. That's justification of the ungodly. And then the psalm develops. God lifts his heavy hand off of the confessing and repenting sinner. He wraps him in his own righteousness and, and accepts him fully. You get to the end of the, of the psalm, verses 10 and 11, and you, you see a crucial use of words. Many are the pangs of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds him who trusts in the Lord so the opposite of wickedness is trust. And now, who are these trusting people? Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
And that word upright is the same words that's used in Proverbs 15, 8. Who are the upright and the righteous in the Old Testament? They are upright sinners. They are upright and righteous sinners who have done two things. They have trembled at the word of God and fallen on their face, broken and contrite before him. And then they have lifted up their hands in prayer and pled for mercy and received it with trust. Because their God is an overflowing fountain of grace. Upright sinners delight the heart of God. You don't have to be perfect to please God. I remember reading in C.S. Lewis one time. He said, God is easy to please and hard to satisfy. And I think that gets at something very, very important. God delights in upright sinners when they pray. Why? Because the prayers of the upright are the prayers of those who hope in God. And the hope of God, hope in God, magnifies the resourcefulness of God. And displays my need and keeps me humble. It's a precious thing, brothers and sisters. And I'm closing now. It's a precious thing beyond all words to know that we have a God who is more pleased by meeting our needs than by making demands upon us. More pleased when we depend on his strength than we try to give him our strength, more pleased when he works for us than when we work for him. Why? Because such glorifies him. And so I just close by saying, glorify God this morning, the God who made you. Delight the heart of God this morning. How? Just like this. Here's the summary. Come to the throne of grace through prayer. When you get to the throne of grace, go to your knees before its awesome majesty. And notice that flowing from the throne of God, as Revelation 22.1 says, there is a river of the waters of life. Then go all the way down and drink. That's all. Is that hard? (laughs) The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who is thirsty, come. Let him who desires, drink the water of life without price. Let's stand and give thanks to the Lord together. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you so much that my hope is built on such a rock of sufficiency and overflowing grace. I thank you so much that you don't need me to meet your needs. You don't need me to make up your deficiencies. You cannot be constrained by me. You cannot be blackmailed by me or bribed by me. Nothing can be earned from you by me. There is only one hope. You are delighted with my thirst in thee. And we bow before you 
and put our face in the water of life flowing from the throne of grace. We're on our knees before you in our hearts right now. Our prayers are ascending right now for we are a needy people. And we glorify and magnify the resourcefulness and the all-sufficiency of your sovereign grace. And we acknowledge our utter dependency and utter need and the joy of drinking at your inexhaustible fountain. Lord, this week, may no one be corrupt, but may we be a channel of living water to our family and to our business associates in Jesus' name.